Our night sky is beautiful as it is. Do we really need product logos next to Orion's belt? The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Oh, your baby buzz. Buzz. Yes, we got it right this time. Buzz Aldrin there. What was he talking about? Well, we'll go over that in a bit, won't we, Matt? Yeah, 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 big time. It's your special chosen news study of the week. Oh, I tell you what, hell of a cliffhanger, that. Most followers of Space News will get it. Yeah. We've got a space birthday today. Whose is it? The European Space Agency astronaut... Samantha Christophe. Oh my goodness. Happy birthday, Samantha. Born on this day, 26th of April, 1977, in Milan. Italian Air Force pilot and engineer. She holds the record for the longest uninterrupted space flight of any European astronaut. 199 days. 199 days. 16 hours. Oh, if only she could have just stayed up for that extra eight hours so it could have been exactly 200 days. It's a bit annoying, isn't it? Yeah. The only woman to have gone longer is Peggy Whitson, of course. Oh, lovely Peggy, yes. Peggy Whitson. Uh, um, Of course, being Italian, Samantha Cristoforetti is also the first person who ever brewed an espresso in space. (laughs) Of course she did. Of course she did. Absolutely yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So happy happy birthday. What a European ledge. Happy, happy birthday. An inspiration to us all. So where would you like to start, Matt? Well, I don't know. We There's obviously the big dragon news, but um, let's hear more about what Buzz Aldrin had to say earlier on. Check this out, Matt. You know that soft drink company called Pepsi? I do. I'm aware. Their Russian subsidiary basically wanted to launch a campaign for its new energy drink, which is called Adrenaline Rush. That's just what the kids need, (laughs) isn't it? Um, And they wanted to, using Start Rocket, a a very new satellite company um, in Russia, Mm. they wanted to uh, start using CubeSats to reflect sunlight on its Mylas sails uh, to project logos and ads for this drink. And then their US branch went, uh, this isn't going to happen uh, anytime <laughs> soon. I think they got a bit worried that the public were going to say exactly what Buzz said. And, and why do we need this? Uh, yeah, it does, it does seem a little bit mad. It really reminds me of those fireworks that are micro asteroids re-entering the atmosphere that they're going to do at the starts of great sporting events like in artificial shooting stars yeah yeah i mean they're not the first company to start doing it but i mean we just we just don't need it do we i'm thinking there's a japanese startup who want to put billboards on on the moon by 2020 oh that, which just seems to be a bit ludicrous doesn't it yeah that does seem to be a bit ludicrous but yeah i mean what do you think about um billboards up in the sky do you like that idea? I don't like it. I was in Los Angeles recently and I got quite excited about um, how they were writing using vapour trails. Mm-hmm. That that was quite cool because then because it, it just went after 
after a few minutes. But I don't really like the idea of looking up at the night sky and Pepsi telling me that I should buy the new Adrenaline Rush drink. I don't like that at all. But what if it only lasted a couple of days? No, I don't, I don't want it there at all. It feels like it's my nature <laughs> and just leave it alone. But there's loads of billboards all around. Yeah, but that's on the ground. Where do you stop? That's why when I go to London, I often take a stroll down the South Bank. Because have you noticed on the South Bank, there are no adverts? I didn't know that. No billboards, no nothing, because they're banned as they were considered a form of aggression. Well, Matt, Ola Mangova, a spokesperson for PepsiCo in Russia, told Futurism site, she said, Orbital billboards are the revolution on the marketing of communications. But I'd just like to say, Olga, just leave it off, yeah? Just, just back off from our skies. It's kind of inevitable, though, isn't it? It is going to happen. Someone's going to do it, and, and we're going to have the first space billboard. Someone's going to do it. Yeah, probably. Did I ever tell you a book I read called Rudy Rucker's, I think it's Singularity. Okay. And it starts with nanobots that, right. that are sent to Mars, and they eat Mars completely and turn it into an enormous billboard that you can see from Earth. Wow. But then the nanobots... Uh, get reprogrammed by some nefarious force and come to Earth and start eating up Earth. They eat the whole of the Earth, but luckily one of the scientists involved, the good guy, teaches his autistic son, uh, who's a savant, to remember a massive line of code so that when he's eaten, it reverses the nanobot and everything gets put back to normal. And that's just the first chapter. <laughs> Wow. It's it's a pretty it's a pretty out there book. That sounds incredible. I mean yeah, anything with, anything with singularity in the title as my vote. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, it's a silly idea. I I don't like it either, Jamie. Yeah. But I it's you know you know and I know that one day we're gonna see it and it's probably not too far away. Well, if we can prolong it, then thank good. What's really big this week, of course, is the SpaceX Dragon. Yeah. So April the 20th, just a few days before St. George's Day, of course, a day famous for the slaying of a dragon. See what I'm doing here? Oh, I see what you did there. Good link. So a dragon has died a couple of days before St. George's Day. I doubt as a tribute. What happened, Matt? What happened? They were doing a static fire test of the Super Draco thrusters. Now, the Super Draco thrusters are, there's there's four pairs of them. So there's eight in total on the Dragon crewed capsule. So this is mm. SpaceX's new Dragon crewed capsule, which carries astronauts, hopefully, up to the ISS, which, which is incredibly late, massively delayed, and this does not look good at all. Uh, when it comes to delays. No. So, yeah, they were testing the, the new Crew Dragon, which was the same actual spacecraft that did the demonstration mission uh, a few weeks ago that went to the ISS and back. Everyone should remember that with the, with the dummy and the spacesuit and the little yeah. globe bouncing around. Well, that particular spacecraft has been completely and utterly destroyed by oh. all accounts. Oh, God. So, yes, yeah, so there's four pairs of these Super Dracos around the airframe of the Dragon capsule. Uh, and one of the reasons, as Elon Musk 
boasted in that press conference for that particular event is the fact that the launch escape system is actually inbuilt into the capsule rather than being a tractor system inbuilt into a launch tower above the capsule to drag the capsule away. The capsule flies under its own thrusters away from any danger. And they were actually originally uh, included as well to do soft landings, but they've abandoned that idea altogether. Um, but yes, these Super Dracos seem to be where the problem lies. They were going to do a static fire test, and then in the last 10 seconds or thereabouts of countdown, there was a huge explosion. Oh. Uh, and the first that people knew about it was that there was an ominous orange smoke cloud that oh, could be seen good. for miles. Never good. Rising up from landing zone one. Well, landing zone one, by the way, is where they they were testing the, the Super Draco engines. And it's also the place where 10 Falcon 9 boosters have landed and a couple more of the third of a Falcon Heavy. So, you know, when you watch those unbelievable views of the Falcon uh, boosters coming down, yeah. with Falcon Heavy, it's one of those zones where they land is the one where uh, they've had this problem. So 12 boosters have landed on landing zone one in total. But, uh, yeah, I wonder how trashed that particular facility is. I, I doubt it's been too trashed, but the spacecraft itself has been completely ruined now it's a write-off now the orange smoke actually isn't that unusual to see with something like this it's it's almost certainly uh one or two tons of nitrogen tetroxide which is the oxidizer used in the super draco uh engines which is a very 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 popular oxidizer when it's mixed with hydrazine or monomethyl hydrazine in the case of uh, the Super Draco. And one of the reasons why they use uh, nitrogen tetroxide is because it can be stored as a liquid at room temperature. It's been used on Gemini and Apollo and the space shuttle uh, okay. maneuvering thrusters. Uh, it's the main oxidizer for Russia's proton rocket. But get this, it's a nasty, nasty sub uh, substance. I was looking at the people in the sea with this orange cloud uh, mm. rising above them. But yeah, uh, during the Apollo Soyuz test uh, in 1975, um, the crew lost consciousness during the ascent because uh, a switch had been left in the wrong position and this uh, nitrogen tetroxide had got into the cabin, fresh air intakes. And um, yeah, they, they all lost consciousness on their descent back oh, to Earth God. and were hospitalized for five days with, get this, chemically induced pneumonia. Oh, Christ. <laughs> Which that's sounds pretty, pretty uh, yeah, that's grim. grim. So the reason why they were testing it, of course, is because the one thing that they haven't done yet is the launch abort test, which they were going to use this. They were going to use a Falcon 9 booster and destroy it and see if the Dragon 2 spacecraft could fly away from it. To do that, they had to do a static fire test on the Super Dracos, which is um, what's caused this disaster. And of course, it's really, really reminiscent of Apollo 1. And Apollo 1, of course, is one of the worst space disasters ever, where three astronauts lost, lost their lives in a space capsule in, a, in very similar circumstances. Mm. And so this, is, this has got to be one of the most dramatic events in a human spacecraft since Apollo 1. And with that, has, I mean, I'm not even exaggerating. Has, uh, has Musk come out and said anything about it yet? Or has 
Has uh, SpaceX given an official statement? Do you know what? I haven't seen any SpaceX official statement other I than, than uh, that it's happened. Um, there was an official statement from Jim Bridenstine. He said mm. NASA has been notified about the results of SpaceX static fire test and the anomaly that occurred during the final test. We will work closely to assure we safely move forward with our commercial uh, crew program. Yes. Um, yeah, so, and it said, this is why we test. We will learn, make the necessary, necessary adjustments and safely move forward. So really, we've got to be talking about a huge delay now in SpaceX's first crewed mission. How long do you reckon? I would think it's got to be a minimum of six months. You know, this is this is yeah, human spaceflight. You know, it's yeah. it's like it's normally six months if it's something to do with just your normal, you know, normal rocket flights, um, like CRS seven when that blew up. There was a big delay between the between the next launch, but this is human spaceflight and not being done before. So. This is bad news because Boeing have already had a similar problem, not quite as dramatic as this one, but it's a very, very similar problem by all accounts. And so both SpaceX and Boeing now don't look as though they're going to achieve a crewed mission until next year, which is just a total blow to NASA, who uh, who've had to purchase Russian seats as it is, but it they might embarrassingly have to go back and purchase even more. So we're relying um, on Virgin Galactic then, Matt? I don't think Virgin Galactic are ever going to get people up to the um, International Space Station, but they will certainly, uh, we might see human spaceflight uh, into space, but could it's be not this year. the Kármán line year. space. Yeah. could be this year. And remember, it's <laughs> suborbital. I mean, it's not. It, it, that really does show you the difference between... Uh, those particular endeavors getting going suborbital and going into you know going orbital is very very leap. different it's a big leap and One it's giant very leap, very some difficult might say. it's yeah but isn't it incredible here we are well you'll you'll hear my interview uh what our guest says about this particular issue um but we yeah will. we've God, got another david yeah. coming up yeah, another Dr. David, although this one's an actual medical doctor. But oh, uh, yes, yes, it's our fifth fifth Dr. David in a row, <laughs> which is not bad, is it? Um, imagine how hard the poor, underpaid, overworked buggers at SpaceX are going to be working over the <laughs> Easter weekend. Yeah, it's not going to be time off. No time off for them. In terms of potentially bad news for SpaceX, I mean, it's just bad because if there's something inherently wrong with the capsule design this this actually may take more than months to fix this may take you know dare i say years to put right mm. undoubtedly nasa are going to really be helping spacex to get back on their feet and get it all this done and make sure it's safe but with all the flash of falcon heavy and starships etc etc spacex still haven't managed to fly a single person anywhere and this is the kind of problem, and this is what I spoke, you know, they were testing. But what you don't want to see is a test go this badly wrong and imagine if that had mm. happened with astronauts on board. Yeah, oof. That would have been seriously horrific. It really would have been. And, of course, SpaceX have got a lot of enemies, you know, particularly fat cat senators in money states, so they're sharpening their knives. This this is really, really 
bad news for SpaceX unless there's something simple that they can fix relatively easily and convince NASA that they haven't compromised the safety of NASA's astronauts. Absolutely. Well, good luck, SpaceX, because, yeah, this is a tough one. So there's been a bit of speculation about about what the cause of this explosion was, and I'm going to give you my best guess. Here we go. The Super Draco engines are pressure-fed. In other words, they don't have turbo pumps. The oxidizer and the uh, fuel are under extreme pressure so that they mm. flow through the engine fast enough. It's these pressure vessels that obviously get pressurized. My guess is that the hydrazine tank has been overpressurized because of a faulty valve. That burst has caused a fire. It's taken out some of the the uh, other tanks, which released that orange gas up into the air and caused a huge explosion as well. Uh, it could be faulty propellant lines that have popped off. You know when mm. you've got your hose pipe in the garden and it pops off oh, the yeah. tap? Could be a very similar situation to that. And, of course, that would cause uh, a similar kind of event but of course this is all speculation but that that's where i'm going to put my guess is an exploding pressure uh, pressure tank or f- uh, or fuel propellant line okay well we'll that's see that's where your money is i don't think that's good news at all i think that would be bad how are they going to build redundancy into these pressure valves or fuel lines it's well, uh, listeners make them safe what do you think it was please write in i think if you beat matt and you're right and he's not, I'm going to send you an interplanetary podcast mug. How about that? Oh, that's a good That's a good call. I can literally hear the smoke coming off people's keyboards as they write in after I've just said that, Matt. Yeah, I can. Two tonnes of orange smoke are bellowing out of keyboards as we speak. Of course. There, there is one thing here that, that's worth considering. When SpaceX build Dragon uh, crew capsules, they Mm. won't be uh, reused. This uh, particular Dragon, of course, had been to the International Space Station and back. So there is a chance that uh, one of the reasons that caused this explosion was this return journey from the space station. So maybe heat stress or salt water or, or lots of other things have caused this malfunction. So there's that ray of hope slightly which does make that that whole idea of flight proven really irritating as a as a mm. statement when do you ever sell a car and say yes it, it's road it might my, my car's road proven you know it's not it's a secondhand car it's a worn out car you can't yeah. make a flight proven vehicle better than the original manufactured vehicle it's impossible so it's used it's not going to be as good as the original um, craft Mm. people do sell their car and point out the fact that that design of car is really safe or whatever and and that's caused by the fact there's lots of other cars being built and have demonstrated that safety so yes flight proven really means that there's been hundreds of them and that the brand new craft should perform equally well so yeah it's a used vehicle, and maybe that's the reason why we've had this anomaly. My goodness, it's all going on. So, Jamie, talk to me about Mars. You know, old insight. Yeah, yeah, it, I'm aware of it. It's picked up a slight tremor, Matt. That's uh, well, it's being called a Mars quake, but let's be realistic about this. It's not the sort mm-hmm. of thing if it happened on Earth that would 
make books fall off shelves. Um, yeah. <laughs> but what's very cool, you know, we're now doing seismology on another planet. That's cool. It's not, you know, it's not the first time they've done seismology on on Mars. No, it's the first time I think it's been detected. Yeah, no, uh, there the were first time seism- it's been recorded. Right, there were seismometers on the Viking landers, hmm. uh, but that's forty years ago. So, but yeah, the the instrument, the size instrument, S E I S instrument, is unbelievable. There's such a great website for the size instrument, which takes you through all the details. It's oh, yeah. Abs- it's absolutely amazing. Uh, we got a quote here from Insight Principal Investigator Bruce Bannert. And he said, we've been collecting background noise up until now, but this is the first event that officially kicks off a new field, Martian seismology. So, as we said, this sort of heralds a new era for Insight. And I, for one, I'm all for it. That that seismometer should be able to pick up not only Mars quakes, but meteorites striking the surface. Yes. Landslides. <clears throat> it can even pick up the wind, the pressure of the wind and the dust devils, because uh, dust devils can create seismic waves. Yeah. I've got to tell you about the seismometer itself. Oh, go for it. You know the stethoscope that doctors use? It's, oh, it's yeah. essentially like that. It's It's that... On the surface of the Mar- uh, surface of Mars, and it's even being plonked down by the robot hand. I like that word, plonked. And it's self-levels, so it's got this amazing self-leveling bit of kit. Because inside the size, you have to—it's like an onion, like a Russian doll. It's yeah. got this—it's got this outer protective layer that protects it from the wind and the thermal changes, because these thermal changes are going to be important, as you'll see. So you've got to completely minimise the wind and change of temperature, of which the change there is an enormous change of temperature on the surface of Mars between night and day. And that's uh, protected again inside this honeycomb structure. And then inside that is a titanium sphere. And inside that, it holds a vacuum. And inside that is the instrument itself, which is three pendulums. And they are so sensitive, they can feel a tremor that's smaller. The movement of the tremor is smaller than a hydrogen atom. Whoa. Which is actually very similar to the human eardrum. So the human hearing, can you can, you can sense a sound that only moves your eardrum by one-sixth of the diameter of a hydrogen atom, just so you realise just how insane the human ear is as well. So it's these little pendulums... Uh, are are inside this like Russian doll piece of equipment, mm. and that's called the very broad band seismometer, and that's uh, one of the things that detected um, this Mars quake, and it and it it collects thirty eight megabits of information per day. Uh huh. Hopefully, if we have bigger quakes, then they should be able to piece together what the insides of Mars looks like. That's the whole aim, is to try and map the structure internally of of Mars. But they're going to need bigger quakes than the one that we've had. But this quake's really encouraging because it means, yes, the the planet is active. I can't believe there's broadband on Mars. Very broadband. I have trouble getting it in my hometown. (laughs) Because of how delicate and ridiculously complicated this piece of equipment is, they actually had three backup sensors called 
the short period sensors, so size SP. And they actually picked up this earthquake as well. If you look at the video, you can see that the size SP is at the top and uh, and the size VBB, the very broadband, is at the bottom. And you can see the little graph of it drawing this uh, Mars quake. And so uh -huh. both picked it up. But the interesting thing about the size SP is that they're just ion-etched silicon wafer chips instead of being pendulums, that they weigh one gram instead of 190 grams, and they were built by the Oxford University and Imperial College here in the Go UK. On, London, yes. So London and Oxford. There is a small bit of British tech on that seismometer. Um, not the major part, the the VBB, which was mainly built in France. But yeah, that's really interesting, isn't it? That they, these this, these three backup chips that were also capable of picking up this uh, minor Mars quake. I love it. What a clever bunch. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, we need to be, speak about Proxima. Uh, a person called Jelly Sock on Twitter, which is a great name. <laughs> I'm all for that. Uh, sent me this article, and it's about our nearest exoplanet, the nearest exoplanet we could ever have, i.e. the nearest star to Earth has an exoplanet that's in the habitable zone. Yes. I want to quote Lisa Kaltenegger, who is uh, director of Cornell, Cornell University's Carl Sagan Institute. Nice. Uh, and she says, our quest to find out whether we are alone in the universe just got a tiny bit easier yes so this whole study basically let's remind ourselves about um about proxima century b if you if you need a big massive recap we did it on podcast six including how we would get there we got very excited and did a huge podcast six we i dare did. listen because it's because it's going to be a little bit embarrassing because it's an early podcast um but Yes, orbiting in the habitable zone is Proxima Centauri b. It's located about 4.2 light years from Earth. That's 25 trillion miles. And Proxima Centauri b orbits about 5% of the distance that Earth is away from the sun. So that's about uh -huh. 4,600,000 miles away. And only takes 11.2 days, Earth days, to go round its sun to have its year. So its year lasts 11.2 Earth days. That is quick. It's got a mass of about 1.3 times that of the Earth. But what's exciting about all these rocky planet discoveries is that they're around red dwarf stars. And red dwarf stars are by far the most common type of star. They're the most common to have rocky planets. And they last a long, long time. So you'd think that this would be the perfect place for life. But one of the problems is that these red dwarfs, they continually flaring up, bombarding oh. their planets with, uh, of course, biologically damaging high-energy UV radiation. So oh. not only that, it might completely rip your atmosphere off. So your atmosphere might get ripped off uh, before it has time to replenish each time. That doesn't sound healthy. Not only that, um, observations seem to suggest that uh, Proxima B receives 30 times more UV than present-day Earth and 250 times more X-ray radiation. Ooh. There's going to be low-energy flares about 63 times a day, 
and there have been large flares, that's energies of up to 10 to the 33, that's one with 33 zeros, a decillion, which is uh, of, of energy, of ergs, 100 septillion joules, that is, occur up to that's, eight times per year. That's a lot of energy. That's a lot uh, of joules. Yeah, it's a lot of joules of energy, uh, more than, than there is even in porridge. Um, and in March 2016, there was a, there's a scope called the Every Scope, which observed the first naked eye brightness super flare. So if you were happen to be looking at it and you happen to be a whiz, you should be able to have seen uh, a, a Proxima Centauri actually brighten slightly with this with this um, super flare. So it's a dangerous wow. place to be, but. This Lisa Kaltenegger and Jack O'Malley James have got a new paper out called Lessons from Earth, UV Surface Radiation Should Not Limit the Habitability of the Active M-Star System. I'm going to read that. And that was published on April the 9th in the Royal Astronomical Society. Well, let's put that up on our blog. What's incredible is that they, they basically uh, looked at Proxima B, TRAPPIST-1E, ROS-128B, and LHS-1140B, which are amongst the best candidates for life out there. And they're, very, very, they're all very, very close as well. So what they did is they've assumed different atmospheric conditions for each of these planets. They've, they've done like a, a whole span of Earth-type atmospheres, to eroded types of atmospheres and even uh -huh. this thing called anoxic atmosphere, which is basically Ooh. no oxygen. In other words, no, nothing to absorb any UV yeah. whatsoever. That doesn't or sound heavy. very little to absorb good. UV. Anoxic. And then they compared that to levels that Earth was being subjected to in its geological past. And what they found was even for the worst atmosphere types, even during the worst flares of UV radiation, uh, it still remains lower than that of early Earth. And although early Earth was brutally inhospitable, it's when life actually started. So life was on Earth during this period when, in actual fact, the UV radiation on the ground would have been worse than it is at these planets, given the worst-case scenario. See, that is really interesting uh, because it was, I mean, millions and millions of years before anything started to walk on land. Billions. So there's hope. That what you're saying, Matt, there's hope. Yeah, stuff on land is in the blink of an eye in terms of in terms of the history of the earth, but stuff in the sea and these and these extreme extremophiles. So there's one extremophile called Dinocus radiodurans which is a polyextremophile and is listed as the world's toughest bacteria in the Guinness Book of Records. And of course, this could survive these kind of conditions. So there may be this type of extremophile alive and well on our nearest exoplanet. This is really exciting. This is the bit I really liked about this paper, is that biofluorescence is actually a really common way for bacteria to protect themselves against UV radiation because it upshifts the UV light to longer, safer wavelengths as it hits the, uh, the organism. So some bacteria actually shine in biofluorescence as there's these big UV events. So as they're right. exposed to UV, they, they shine. And maybe 
you can actually use this increased emitted biofluorescence as something that's visible from Earth, that you might be able to see all these bacteria glowing with their biofluorescence from Earth and see that there's life on Proxima Centauri. There's a tantalizing um, way of being able to see if there's life on another planet. I mean, that, oh, how incredible would that be? That is incredible, yeah. If they pointed the James Webb telescope at Proxima C and it started glowing every time that there was a, a, a flare. And it should oh. be easy to detect in actual fact because it's such because the star itself isn't that bright and the biofluorescence should be several orders of magnitude greater than the flare itself. So, I mean, that would be just an amazing announcement, wouldn't it, that we could oh. see life glowing. Hurry up, James Webb. Man, it would just be incredible. Well, that is incredible. Add to this, the previous week, Jelly Sock sent me the story about how Mario Damaso of Turin and Fabio del Sordo of the University of Crete announced at the annual invitation-only breakthrough discussed the Yuri, Miller, Yuri Milner project that they had detected a second planet around Proxima Centauri, Proxima C, a so-called super-Earth with a minimum mass roughly six times that of the planet, with a 1,900-day orbit. So this is miles out a bit. So basically, it's a, it's a frigid world, but it's huge. And what, what's really interesting about that is it makes it a really good candidate for taking a photograph of an exoplanet move-over photograph of black hole. Oh, my goodness. This is exciting. So that's exciting. However, as they both point out, Damaso says it's only a candidate. This is very important to underline. In other words, the data is there, but it's sketchy as hell. So mm. there might be a whole heap of other reasons. There might be smaller planets. There might be, you know, very, very hard to eke out this data, the wobble in the star and the uh, because of the way that the star itself, it's brightness is fluctuating all over the place so it's very very hard to actually really get this data so mm. it hinted at the data when they found proxima b there was a hint that there's this planet existed uh, which has grown stronger with a couple of years more data but it's still not quite there and del sordo quoted a transcendentalist henry david thoreau who's a uh, poet and an essay writer and he and he quotes if you have built castles in the air your work need not be lost that is where they should be now put the foundations under them Ooh. in other words yeah you can have you can you can build these things from really scant foundations, but just make sure that you build the foundations afterwards. <laughs> so they've got yeah. to go off and do the work. They, they, I've got to go and do the work now and, and see if they can really um, prove that this planet exists. But it's looking very exciting. Well, I love that. Good work, team. So shall we go to our interview? Dr. David, we'll see you now. Ecoute. Please take a seat. The Interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space i'm joined on the show by david chudwin who was a teenage space reporter at the apollo 11 mission hello david welcome to the show thank you very much uh, it's a really exciting story this one so could you uh, a tell us a little bit about yourself and 
how you came to be in a position to be one of the youngest reporters of the Apollo 11 mission. Well, I'm a very lucky individual. I was born in the right place in the right country at the right time to, to do this. Uh, I grew up with the space age. I was seven years old when the Russians launched Sputnik, the first artificial satellite. Uh, I was 11 when the first men went into space, uh, Yuri Gagarin for Russia and Alan Shepard uh, for the United States. Uh, and um, in high school, I became interested in journalism. And when I entered the University of Michigan uh, in uh, August 1968, uh, I joined the independent student newspaper there called the Michigan Daily. And uh, I was the only person there who had any interest whatsoever in space or science. Uh, they were all like political science majors and philosophy majors and things like that. And uh, so I was, I was uh, definitely uh, the, um, by de facto, the only space reporter they had or ever had. Uh, in um, December 1968, when I was home for the Christmas holidays, an uh, old friend and I who shared interest in space uh, started talking about uh, seeing a Saturn V launch, seeing the launch of the moon rocket. And so he suggested that uh, in the summer of 69, we go down to the Cape to see a Saturn V launch. Uh, we looked into it and we saw that there was a mission, Apollo 11, that was being scheduled for July uh, 1969. So we determined to get down there. Uh, how we got the press passes is a whole other story. In which case, well, how, how did uh, before we get on to what must be absolutely incredible experience seeing a Saturn V launch, how, how did you get your press pass? Well, I applied for press credentials to the public affairs office at NASA, and I was turned down uh, for two reasons. First of all, they didn't regard college journalists as professionals. They considered them students. And secondly, they had over 3,500 requests for press passes for this historic mission. But uh, not giving up, uh, a, a friend of mine who was going to be in Washington, uh, who was an editor of the Michigan Daily, uh, I persuaded him to uh, go to NASA headquarters and plead our case in person. Uh, and uh, he was the editor that summer of a group called the College Press Service, which was over 500 newspapers, college newspapers. Um, he argued with NASA that we weren't representing just a college newspaper, but the whole group of them. And he was very persuasive, and eventually my friend and I got our press passes. What, a, what an absolute legend. When you were saying that you were looking at uh, these various missions and you saw Apollo 11, at that, at that point were you aware that Apollo 11 was going to be the iconic flight, or, or was that still not in stone at that point? No, it was still not in stone. Again, our discussions were in December 1968. Uh, there were still two flights to come. Uh, Apollo 9 in March, which was scheduled for March to test the lunar module, and Apollo, Apollo 10 in May uh, to test the entire system. And so it was. if there was any problems with those flights, 11 would not have been the landing flight. Uh, it more likely would have been the following mission, Apollo 12. So it just happened that Apollo 11 fit our our uh, summer break schedule from university. That's quite a lucky break there then, isn't it, really? So can you describe the day, what time you started and, and what the Cape was like? Well, first of all, we got down to the Cape um, three days before and had some incredible experiences 
uh, during those three days uh, because of the press passes. We went on uh, two NASA bus tours, uh, including to the top of the launch control center, the top of the vehicle assembly building. We got within a few feet of the base of the Saturn V rocket and the vehicle assembly building that was going to be used for the next, next mission. Uh, we went to NASA press conferences where there were people like Werner von Braun, uh, Robert Gilruth, and, and other high NASA officials. But on the day of the launch, um, I set the alarm clock for 4.30 in the morning. Uh, there were no cell phones then, so it was an old-fashioned wind-up uh, alarm clock. Uh, we got up, and we were able to go and see the walkout of the astronauts. Uh, that's when they left the um, what was called the Manned Spacecraft Operations Building, which is now called the ONC Building. But they walked out in their white spacesuits. And you might have uh, you know, seen pictures of this or um, seen it in this recent Apollo 11 documentary as they walked out there. Uh, they um, walked down and got into the van that took them to the pad. There were about 200 to 250 reporters there, and I was one of them. Uh, it was very, very emotional scene seeing these men take their last steps on Earth before leaving for the moon. Uh, and uh, it was uh, interesting trying to do the reporting from there because the 200 or 250 reporters were um, crammed in this very small roped-off area. And uh, when we got there in the buses, the best approximation I've given is it was like a rugby scrum. Uh, everybody was running and elbowing to try and get the best positions behind the rope. You can see why, though. I mean, this is this is your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, isn't it? Right. And even though it's 50 years ago, it seems like it's just yesterday. Uh, luckily, I was able to take uh, some uh, Kodachrome pictures. Uh, I brought a, a old camera with it belonged to my dad. Of course, then there were no digital cameras and no automatic cameras. You had to set all the settings yourself. And uh, I was able to take pictures of a lot of these events. And uh, that's, I think, one of the nice things about my book is that I was able to include many of these pictures uh, as illustrations in the book. Well, that, that really is de definitely a plus a plus side for it. I was going to buy the Audible version, but I'll have to buy the actual one now. <laughs> so... Did you before the launch itself? Did you uh, manage to interview any any of the people involved? Well, the day before the launch, we had a twenty minute private interview with Dr. George Miller, who is the associate administrator for manned spaceflight, the head of the manned spaceflight program, and um, I think Dr. Miller is one of the unsung heroes of the space program. Uh, he headed it during the Apollo years, and later on, he was the father of Skylab and the father of the space shuttle. Uh, and um, was responsible for meeting the goal of landing on the moon by proposing what was called all-up testing, that the rockets be tested all uh, stages together rather than stage by stage, as Von Braun and the others had previously done. So we had a 20-minute private interview with him, which was very, very special. Later, later I turned it into an article, which was published. Does any of the transcript from that interview end up in your book, or just the memories of it? Um, the, the memories of it and some pictures of him too. <laughs> is there any place where you can actually get to see that the, your old interview? Is, is that available online anywhere? Uh, it's, it's not available online, although I think it's an excellent idea, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, put it on the, uh, the website that we've established, uh, davidchudwin.com, uh, and uh, have the, the transcript available there.
yeah, that that really would be really interesting. It's it's always really interesting to read. You just get the slight nuance, don't you, when you when you hear stories as they're being told in real time, particularly the day before such an iconic event, as well. Right. So, um, when it came to the actual launch itself, can you describe a Saturn V launch? Probably the, one of the most amazing experiences of my entire life. Um, we got after the the walkout of the astronauts. Um, we went to first the Launch Thirty Nine press site. Uh, and then we had an opportunity to board NASA buses actually to go to what was called the VIP site. But NASA had invited several thousand um, different people from all walks of life, uh, ranging from politicians uh, to industrialists, um, even to TV personalities and movie stars were there. Uh, for example, the, the American um, television stars Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, who had The Tonight Show, were there. Um, actor Hugh O'Brien was there. So they invited all types of people to this VIP site. And so my friend and I took the bus there and actually watched the launch there uh, and um, uh, talked to an, a number of, um, of uh, um, astronauts there uh, and, and some of these other people who had been invited. Any particular astronauts have anything very memorable to say? Was there any kind of real standout moment of, of clarity? Well, the, we talked. We had a chance to talk to um, Fred Hayes uh, later of Apollo 13, and uh, talked to Fred. Had been uh, the lunar module backup pilot and had gotten into the cockpit aboard the Saturn V about midnight and was checking all the the switches and everything like that, and uh, and saw the crew off. And we we talked to him and uh, said that they were really ready to go. That it was something that they had prepared for for a long time and uh, that uh, they were set to go on the mission. The, um, the actual launch itself uh, was surprising in several aspects. Uh, the, first of all, um, we saw right at the precise time, it, it, it had been scheduled at 9.32 a.m. months before, and precisely at 9.32 a.m., there was a bright yellow ball of flame at the base of the rocket, and then flames shot out from either side due to these uh, flame and heat detect deflectors. And so the rocket just sat there um, and it just sat. I mean, and to us, it seemed like forever, um, but it actually took about 10 seconds for the rocket actually to lift up and, and clear the tower. So you had this huge rocket in the distance with flame shooting from it, just kind of sitting there. And then it very, very gradually rose up, a, a lot different from a shuttle launch when, when they lit the solid rocket boosters, it really got moving quickly. This was a very, very slow ascent. And at first, we could just see it. There was no sound. But as it cleared the tower, the sound reached us uh, and was just overwhelming. You actually physically felt the sound pounding on your chest. Um, it's been described as like 100 uh, locomotives. Uh, it was a loud, crackling, kind of all-encompassing sound. And as the rocket rose, we could actually feel some of the heat from it, even though we were three and a half miles away. Uh, there was three, seven and a half million pounds of thrust burning at that point, and you, you could actually feel it. As the rocket began to rise above the tower, um, it kind of picked up speed and then gradually became just a point of light in a uh, 
partly cloudy blue sky. <laughs> At what point could you did you stop hearing it? Presumably, this this loud noise goes on for quite some time. I, I didn't time it precisely, but it, it, the loud noise went on for at least. Um, at least two to three minutes, it seemed like. Oh, yeah, I'd, I've, I've still yet to see a rocket launch, embarrassingly. So uh, <laughs> here in England, we don't get very many of them, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah, the Saturn V has to be the launch, I would have thought. There's nothing that's beat it since, is there? Have you seen many rocket launches since? No, I saw um, from a distance one shuttle launch, but I, um, I haven't been able to. Ah, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard, isn't it? What was the rest of the day like? Or did you have a busy day or was that kind of the end of the day for you? Well, uh, again, we had gotten up at 4.30 in the morning, um, ended up going um, back to the uh, the Apollo 11 News Center, which was in Cape Canaveral for this event, uh, and uh, wrote up a story. Uh, and then uh, went back to the motel and went in the swimming pool. And as I was kind of floating in the swimming pool, I was kind of thinking of the Apollo 11 crew kind of floating in weightlessness in the Apollo command module. Uh, I think they were finding it a little bit easier to float than I was on the water. So, so over the next couple of days and, and few days, presumably, I, do you, are you still based at the Cape or, or have you gone home at this point to, to carry on following the story? No, um, I decided to stay at the Cape. Now, most of the journalists actually left to go to mission control in Houston, so they, they flew from Florida to Texas. But mine was a low-budget student operation, and I didn't have the money <laughs> to fly to, to Houston. So I decided to cover it from the Apollo 11 News Center in Cape Canaveral. So these, you know, from over 3,500 journalists, there were down to like a couple hundred journalists um, and they were either foreigners or impoverished like me. So describe the moment, I suppose, when you first realized that uh, Neil Armstrong was taking his first steps on the moon. Well, actually, you know, I, I think that's a misconception because to me, the high point was actually landing on the moon, not the first steps. I think the first steps are way overrated and were more um, ceremonial, actually, than the actual feat of landing on the moon. Um, Neil Armstrong did a hell of a piloting job to actually land it there, and the um, the actual landing was incredibly exciting to those who knew what was going on. Um, as they were coming down, uh, there were all kinds of computer alarms. The Apollo guidance computer was very, very primitive. Uh, your cell phone has more computing power than that Apollo guidance computer. So there were all these computer alarms, and they had to decide whether to abort or whether to go ahead. Uh, and then as they got closer to landing, um, Neil Armstrong saw that he was going to end up in a field of big boulders, uh, which was not a good situation uh, for a safe landing. So he had to fly over the boulder field, and then next up was a small crater, and he couldn't land in the crater. So he had to go further over the crater to find a smooth area. Meanwhile, they were running out of fuel. And uh, at, at, at one point, the capsule communicator, Charlie Duke, uh, on the ground gave them a reading of 30 seconds. What that meant was there was 30 seconds of fuel left and you damn well better land or you're gonna run out of fuel. Uh, and so Neil Armstrong did find a, a landing spot and, and put it down uh, with just a very minimal fuel left. Uh, when they landed, he called out Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. And to me, that was just one of the most emotional moments 
Um, you know, I thought of the 400,000 people around the world that had worked on, on Project Apollo, getting this together. I thought of the astronauts who had died, the Apollo 1 crew, uh, making this possible. And so to me, the actual first step was, was kind of anticlimactic. Right. Well, yeah, I've not, I've not heard that perspective uh, said much before. But yeah, I can, I can completely understand it. I mean, that, the, the, the landing always does strike me as being incredibly brave for Neil Armstrong to have just carried on trying to look for somewhere calmly while he's running out of fuel. Right. And um, I, I think that was one of the reasons he was um, uh, chosen for the mission was that he had at least twice in, in um, episodes that could have led to his death, you know, stayed calm and solved the problem. Um, the first was with Gemini 8 when a thruster was stuck open. And he and Dave Scott got into a rotation that was so rapid that they were on the verge of passing out. Uh, that that uh, their vision began to get narrow, and they were right before passing out. Uh, he uh, was able to um, disengage from the thrusters and and save them. In the second episode, he was f um, flying this what was described as a flying bed, uh, flying bed, the lunar landing research vehicle, and he was able to uh, he was able to eject from it just before it crashed down. Uh, and that, and I think that those are two incidents that gave NASA a lot of confidence in for Neil Armstrong to be the first man. What what parts of the mission do you remember the most in terms of th that first mission? Well, I certainly remember, of of course, most of the launch, having personally been there, um, and then the landing. And I think the first steps were important, uh, and. I really think that it should have been described as first men on the moon and not first man, mm. because Buzz Aldrin uh, played an important role in this whole thing, and I think he's been given a bum rap in uh, certain movies that have come out recently uh, and, and stuff like that. So um, in my mind, it's the first men on the moon, both Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, and, and not just Neil Armstrong. Uh, as far as uh, high points... Um, the, uh, the two further high points for me were when they took off from the moon and were able to rendezvous with Mike Collins, who was circling overhead uh, in the command module Columbia in lunar orbit. Uh, you know, had they not been able to, to, um, to rendezvous with him, they would have never have made it back. Uh, and then, of course, the landing uh, in the Pacific Ocean was, was a high point as well. And uh, the... Um, you know, it's curious now, but they were forced to get into these biologic isolation garments because of fears that there were moon germs or moon organisms that would attack the Earth, and and they were put in isolation. I guess, I mean, it's better safe than sorry, isn't it? <laughs> Something like that. Right. But it, it seems kind of quaint now. Now, after they got out of isolation, um, they were with their family a couple of days, but then they went on a start of a grand tour. Um, through the United States and, and around the world. And um, on August 13th, uh, they came to my hometown of Chicago, and uh, I was able to see them again uh, in this uh, parade. I used my press pass to, again to get kind of close-up access and was able to, um, to see them and watch this ticker tape parade that over a million people attended. And this was one of only, there were three parades that day, one in the morning in New York, one in the afternoon in Chicago, and then a third one in Los Angeles uh, that, that night of August 13th. 
Did you ever get to meet either Buzz Aldrin or Neil Armstrong or Mike Collins? I w- encountered uh, all three of them. Um, I was actually able to meet and later have dinner with at space events with uh, Buzz Aldrin and Mike Collins. And I was at uh, a couple of events where Neil Armstrong uh, was there in person and heard him speak. Uh, I didn't get a chance to actually shake his hand or get a picture with him, but uh, I was I was there. There's something incredible, isn't it, that, that, that those three people have left Earth and, and have visited the moon. Did you, do you, do you, did you get that sense while, while you're actually in their presence? I mean, you know, they, they get up and brush their teeth like all of us. You know? <laughs> yeah. put their, they put their pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, and so I was kind of in awe of their accomplishments, but they're, they're human beings. Uh, and it, it's been one of the great pleasures of writing this book and, and following the space program has been getting to know some of these guys. Uh, you know, Fred Hayes, uh, uh, Fred Hayes, Charlie Duke, who walked on the moon on Apollo 16, Al Worden, they all wrote uh, advanced praises for my book. Uh, and it was a real honor that they were willing to do that. that that's really great. I mean, I, I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of this because I'm just looking at some of the chapters now because I've got a, a preview uh, a press release for it. And, well, the, and the, the, the release date in the UK is uh, the 2nd of May. I'll get my hands on it soon then. <laughs> That's great. Did you remain a journalist or did you get interested in space or what, what did you end up doing with your life? Well, while I, while I was in college, I prepared for two different careers, for journalism and also pre-medicine. Uh, and um, the, the American baseball player, Yogi Berra, had some great sayings. And one of my favorite was, uh, he said at one point, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And as my senior, my senior year in college, I needed to decide whether to go into journalism or medicine. And after a lot of thought, I ended up going into medicine uh, and decided that I would write on the side. And, and this book is kind of the culmination of that uh, part of my uh, split personality. Do you ever indulge your passion of medicine and space at the same time? Because there's a lot going on, isn't there, in, in space medicine at the moment, particularly with Scott Kelly and, and those areas of research. Is that something you're interested in? Yeah, I have. I mean, I haven't, the only thing professionally I've done with that is I was asked to review uh, some uh, uh, scientific papers on, uh, on uh, medical effects of spaceflight uh, as an as a expert reviewer uh, and that. But I mainly just followed with interest because there's so many medical issues about long-term spaceflight uh, that we don't have sufficiently answered. Uh, you know, there are issues about vision, there's issues about um, bone mass, uh, there's issues about the immune system, uh, and there's major issues about uh, radiation exposure on long-term missions. The most recent paper on Scott Kelly is not not good reading at all, is it? I haven't read the pa- paper, but I've, I've heard the, the summaries, but there's actually chromosomal changes yeah. uh, uh, from uh, just a year's time spent in, uh, in Earth orbit. You, you have to remember that the Van Allen radiation belts protect us and those in Earth orbit from a lot of the, the cosmic rays and, and things like that. And a trip to Mars uh, is, would be a lot more dangerous because you lack this protection. And a trip to Mars might last as long as three years, depending on the, the plan for the mission. Yeah. I mean, even even the Apollo astronauts, in some ways, got lucky, didn't they? That they didn't have to face a solar flare or or some other cosmic event that would 
put them at risk because, like you said, they're beyond the Van Allen belts. In fact, the only people ever to go beyond the Van Allen belts. No, that, that's correct. And, and radiation is, you know, a major issue. And I think that's one of the reasons that NASA is doing these long-term space flights. Uh, and they just, uh, you know, announced in the last couple of weeks that uh, there is going to be um, two additional uh, long-term flights. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of work to be done. A lot of work to be done on that front. Do you follow what's going on in, in the new space race, I suppose, the uh, what could be seen as either the commercial space race or the um, China, India, America, Russia, etc. space race? Are you interested in what's going on at the moment? Yes, absolutely. And, and the last third of my book talks about our future in space and covers at least some of these things, especially the commercial elements. When NASA was going to the moon, uh, the NASA budget was 4% of the entire U.S. budget. Today, it's less than half of 1%. Hmm. And so even though NASA gets about $20 billion a year, and that's a good sum of money, uh, it's much less in constant dollars than they were getting during the moon era. And there's a saying, no bucks, no buck rogers. If you don't hmm. have the money, you're not going to be flying around. Uh, so the, the answer to that has been first international cooperation with the European Space Agency. And, uh, of course, everybody in the UK is familiar with Tim Peake's flight um, to the International Space Station. Uh, and the other thing is, is uh, commercial involvement with um, companies like Elon Musk, SpaceX, Jeff Bezos, um, Blue Origin. Uh, I was just down at Cape Canaveral a couple weeks ago, and right ne next to the Kennedy Space Center is this huge factory that Blue Origin has built, uh, and they're producing these new rockets, uh, which they've called New Shepard and New Glenn, which are going to take people into space in the next few years. Uh, so I think that the addition of the funds from these commercial companies, mainly from internet billionaires, has, has been important. Uh, it's estimated that Jeff Bezos, who um, has spent who's uh, has spent uh, a billion dollars a year uh, of his own personal money the last few years uh, to to pay for Blue Origin. That the, the entire source is his private funding. It's something I I, I mean to do really is a is a, a a kind of almost a political look at how these space billionaires operate because <laughs> there's there's obviously the the space geek in me is super excited and then there's an, another little bit of me that gets a little bit scared when i think about bond villains in there <laughs> yeah. carved out volcanoes right. and, equ and equate them to musk and bezos but, uh, but but what what i think a lot of people don't realize is that the first space tourism suborbital flights is going to occur within the next two years yeah um, that uh, richard branson's virgin galactic um, is going to fly people on a spaceship too, and that um, Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin is going to fly people on these New Shepard missions. Mm. Uh, they're both suborbital. They'll take people up to 60, 65 miles, uh, which is considered space. They'll be able to experience weightlessness. They'll see the curvature of the Earth and then come down. And uh, it's, these missions are going to be expensive. Uh, the exact prices haven't been set, but uh, Virgin Galactic took um, deposits of 200,000 people a person uh, and has uh, many people who want to, want to fly. And this is very, very near term. Uh, hmm. And uh, like I said, within the next two years, they'll be the first space tourists.
Yeah, I mean, Richard Richard Branson thinks he's he's going to be going up this year, doesn't he? The, the problem with this is that um, Virgin Galactic said that they were going to be flying space tourists like seven or eight years ago, yeah. and there have been delays. And so the reason I say a couple of years is I think that they tend to be a little bit overly optimistic uh, about their schedules. But um, he's Richard Branson did say that he's going to be on uh, you know one of the, the first... Uh, um, Test flights involving actual tourists. Yeah, and 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 in terms of human space flight, um, I'm I'm assuming you, you you do think that this return of human space flight to U.S. soil with um, SpaceX and Boeing uh, as being really important is that something over your side of the pond that's considered pretty important. Yes, I do. I mean, 50 years ago when I was at the Apollo 11 launch, the thought that 50 years on that we would be depending on the Russians to get our astronauts into orbit would have been thought absolutely insane. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're paying 70 or $80 million a seat to send U.S. astronauts into orbit. And, um, you know, to the older individuals like myself who remember the Cold War between U.S. and Russia, for us to be dependent on, on Russia for that is uh, really uh, ridiculous. Yeah, so uh, presumably you're as stressed as I am about this this latest news from SpaceX that they've had a bit of a hiccup on the uh, on the Dragon. Well, I'd say blowing up the capsule is a little bit more than a hiccup. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it but it was uh, you know one of one of the rockets uh, involved, and um, you know one shudders to think if something like that would have happened in space with with crew aboard. Uh, but I mean that's why they, that's why they do the testing. Um, I have a lot of confidence in SpaceX uh, and their engineering capabilities that they'll be able to figure it out and, and fix the problem. But it really uh, gives a real dose of a reality to the, the whole situation. Yeah, yeah. Well, space is hard indeed. Thank you very much for uh, coming on and, and sharing some of your experiences. Um, so the book is out on the mm. 2nd of May in Britain, did you say? Yes, that's correct. It's, it's been out just a couple of weeks in the United States. We'll all look out for that, and I'll definitely be getting my copy. Well, I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it and reliving the experiences of 50 years ago. I'm very, very jealous. I mean, that's a really lucky call, isn't it? I'm a very lucky guy. <laughs> the Interplanetary Podcast is alive! So cool. Thanks, Dr. David. We absolutely love that. And his book out, as he said, in, in this country. Uh, it's, it's already out in uh, America, but it's out in this country uh, next week. So look out for that. And that title again? It is I Was a Teenage Space Reporter, David Judd. There we go. Get yourself on Amazon. Other bookshops are available. I'm going to finish on a space fact, Jamie. Here we go. David mentioned a guy called George Edwin Miller. Uh-huh. Spell M-U-E-L-L-E-R, who was the associate administrator at NASA yeah. who headed the Office of Manned Space Flight. And he said, you uh -huh. know, he's a really unsung hero. And when you read this guy's resume, you, you realize, oh my God, he really was an unsung hero. Uh and he, he lived till ninety-seven. He would have been over a hundred had he had survived to the this year to see the Apollo fifty celebrations. Yes. While he was in London in August 1968, 
to receive his award from the British Interplanetary Society, Aha. he was there to trumpet the cause of the space shuttle. That's before Apollo 11. He's, he's talking about the space shuttle. And he says, now get this, there is a real requirement for an efficient Earth to orbit transportation system an economical space shuttle. I forecast that the next major thrust in space will be the development of an economical launch vehicle for shuttling between Earth and an orbiting space station. Oh, my God. (laughs) So that's how far we are behind now that SpaceX have had a hiccup and Boeing have had their hiccup. You know, this is someone talking way back in 1968 about the need to be able to shuttle people up to an orbiting space station. And it's still going on. That is some clairvoyance. It's amazing, isn't it? It's obviously so much harder than everyone thought it was going to be. They thought the space shuttle was going to be going. He's known as the father of the space shuttle, George Edwin, but he he kind of disowned the the version that we ended up with. He Mm. was very disappointed with it. There we go. Absolutely amazing. Of course, we wish to thank our beautiful Spodcats, oh, the Patreons do we ever. at all the levels, Patreons. at all levels, but in particular, these unbelievable legends who I can never quite get over their generosity and just amazingness. Matt, I'd like you to read out their names. Who have we got? We've got Bob Hodges. Of course, Big Bob. Kaylee Brown. Oh, Kaylee, thank you. Karel Sim. Carell, you are. You just are. Julio a prayer. Amen. Oh, absolutely amen. Darren Fuchs. Get in, Darren. Justin Roberts. Justin, you demand. John Benack. Papa John, we love you. Anthony Peggs. Big Tony. <laughs> and Matt Gilliland. Thank you, Matt. In Chicago, Illinois. One of the best albums ever made, Illinois. Thank you, everyone. And Chicago, what a great song on Illinois as well. We've also got a Norwegian. Aren't you in Norway at the moment? I'm in Norway currently. Who have we got? I'll go and say thanks. We've got Auden Vala. Auden, um, I'm going to come and say thank you. Text me your address. (laughs) And the Lord High Fixer, Jared Osvath. Oh, the grand grand person that is jared thank you sir what a bunch of legends that is absolute legends you make this happen it wouldn't happen without you we love you absolutely amazing matt if people want to join that list yeah what do they do oh either head over to interplanetary.org.uk or patreon.com forward slash interplanetary it's all very simple Right, Matt, I'm off to write a strong-worded letter to Pepsi. What are you up to? I am going to the Ukraine. Oh, my goodness. We're so jet-setters. I know. I'm going to the Ukraine, see if I can find anything about Hermann Obert. Well, good luck. The Ukraine have punched massively above their weight when it comes to space. They really have. If I find anything space-related in Lviv, I'll let you know. Please do. Have a safe travels and have a good weekend, everyone. Bye bye, Spodcats. We love you very much. That's true, we do. Ta ta. Bye bye.